You can turn with me to the book of Revelation. Again, Revelation chapter 19. That's where we'll begin this morning. Got any uh, World Cup fans out there? Anybody enjoy the World Cup this year? Okay, we've got a few. Uh, anybody not know what the World Cup is? All right, don't, don't raise your hand. If you, it's the largest sporting event in the world, right? More people watch that than anything else. Um, it's soccer or football in the rest of the world. That's what it's all about, World Cup. My, my daughter and I were watching the match between Portugal and the United States uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, to be more specific, we were actually we were bowling. And while we were bowling, on the screen to our left, there was a music video. On the screen to our right, there was uh, the World Cup match. Um, because everybody knows bowling's not exciting enough by itself. You've got to have a music video and soccer going. So we were watching the soccer uh, as we were bowling. And um, it was a really very exciting game. For those of you who follow World Cup, you know, it was a thrilling game. U.S. was not expected to beat Portugal. But as the game wound down, we looked up and we saw a screen and it was United States 2, Portugal 1. As we finished our bowling and turned in our bowling balls and turned in our shoes, there was about a minute left. United States was winning 2-1. to one. Americans all over the world were celebrating this incredible victory because by beating Portugal, we would automatically advance to the next round. So Americans are going crazy all over the place. 2-1, to one, we're beating Portugal. It's wonderful. Turned in all of our stuff. Walked out to the car. And I turned on the radio and found the soccer match, and it was over, and it was tied. Apparently, in the last 30 seconds, Portugal scored a goal and tied up the game. So it was uncertain then whether the United States advanced or not. We had to play Germany next. If we beat Germany, we would certainly advance. We'd be guaranteed to advance. But we didn't beat Germany. We lost to Germany 2-1, to one, but because Portugal only beat Ghana 2-1, to one, we still advanced. And if you don't follow that, don't worry about it. That's just World Cup scoring and how it works, but it has nothing to do with my point. My point is this. There's a lot of uncertainty in life, right? That's my point. If you're an Aggie fan, you know what I'm saying, right? I tuned out and I thought we were winning. Ah, right? Students, you know what I'm talking about. Get to the end of the semester. Are you going to pass that exam? Are you going to pass that course or not? Fall semester's coming up. Are you going to get a date or not? Right? Is that guy that you really want to ask out, is he going to ask or not? And if you ask that girl, is she going to say yes or not? A lot of uncertainty, right? It's really consuming at times. Your parents are thinking, is he going to get a job or not? Is he going to move home or not? When you get that job, am I going to keep that job or not? In uncertain times economically. Will I get married or not? Then you get married and you say, well, Will we be able to have kids or not? And then you have kids and you go, will they walk with Jesus or not? Will I keep the job I have? If I lose my job, will I be able to get another one? In other words, every stage of life presents us with new uncertainties. And uncertainties create anxiety and fear. According to a recent study, almost 20% of Americans suffer from some form of anxiety disorder. But there's one outcome that is so absolutely certain. It is is absolutely and utterly guaranteed. And it's the most important outcome in all of human history. And it it is going to happen. It is so certain it's going to happen. Heaven is already celebrating. And that is the return of God's Son, Jesus Christ, to earth to establish God's kingdom on earth. Heaven's already celebrating it. And heaven invites us to come on, celebrate with us this absolutely certain outcome. 
And that's what Revelation chapter 19 is all about. I want you to read with me in Revelation 19, beginning in verse 1. John writes, After these things I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, because His judgments are true and righteous. For He has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality, and He has avenged the blood of His bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you His bondservants, you who fear Him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God The Almighty reigns. Revelation chapter 19 opens up with a worship service. Four times. All the hosts of heaven. Four living creatures we talked about last week. The 24 elders. The multitude of angels. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands. Whose voice is so loud it sounds like thunder or the rush of water. They open Revelation chapter 19 with a worship service and they're saying hallelujah over and over and over again, which means in Hebrew, praise the Lord. Praise God. Now, they're not praising God though for His mercy and kindness and compassion. They're praising God for His justice. Praising God for His righteousness and His strength because He's begun to crush His enemies. The first enemy that He crushes is a city called Babylon. Where exactly is that city? Is it literally the city of Babylon rebuilt? If you've read the book of Revelation, you know there's a lot of figurative images that come in frequently. Sometimes they're explained, sometimes they're not. Is this literally Babylon? Well, we know just in chapter 11, Jerusalem is called Sodom and Egypt. Even though it's not literally Sodom or Egypt, but it's behaving like Sodom and Egypt, so it's labeled as such. So we don't know, is this literally the city of Babylon in Iraq that's rebuilt? Or is it another city? What's important is not exactly where the city is, but where the, what the city represents. And what it represents is a world order that is entirely contrary to the kingdom of God returning to and ruling and reigning upon earth. It is a, a world order that is centered in the city and has begun to exercise control over every area of life, over religion, Morality, politics, economics. And it has joined forces with all of the kingdoms of the earth and with Satan. And as Revelation chapter 19 opens, all the hosts of heaven are being called upon to worship God because he has begun to crush his enemies. The first enemy defeated is this city, this world order of Babylon. I want you to read with me in chapter 17 and verse 15. Revelation chapter 17, verse 15. The angel said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits. The harlot is another name for this city of Babylon. Why is it called a harlot? Because it's engaged in false worship. And the false worship is tied to immorality. It is a sensual, immoral worship. And he said to me, the waters on which you saw where the harlot sits, these are peoples and multitudes of nations and tongues. The ten horns which you saw on the beast, that is, 
the nations, this confederacy of nations. These will hate the harlot, and they will make her desolate and naked, and they will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose, by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. The woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. So what John is learning from the angel is that during the tribulation period, a really powerful city emerges. It's a very immoral city. It's a city that begins to exercise economic influence and political influence over all the earth. In fact, these, these ten nations, this confederacy of the most powerful kingdoms, sit under her. She rides on them. She's in control over them. But at some point during the tribulation period, they join forces with with Satan, and they turn on the harlot on this city, and there's civil war, and the city is absolutely destroyed. And everyone who made their wealth by this city cries out and wails as they see this city going up in flames, burning up in flames. But heaven rejoices. But heaven rejoices because this, this absolutely immoral, blasphemous place has been destroyed. Not only that, the city of Babylon is defeated. These nations as well will be defeated. Read with me in chapter 17, verse 12. It says, The ten horns which you saw, those are ten kings, which have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose. They give their power and their authority to the beast. But they too will be destroyed. And then the false trinity will be destroyed. Look with me in chapter 19, in verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth who have joined forces together, and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. The rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Satan has one technique, doesn't he, to accomplish his purposes, and that is he lies, right? He deceives. He's the father of lies. Anytime he speaks, he lies. He can't do anything but lie. Through his lies, he destroys. Paul tells us that he disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan doesn't show up on earth in a red suit, horns, and a tail because we go, I I know who you are, right? We, We would spot that. Instead, he disguises himself as an angel of light. During the tribulation period, he disguises himself as God, which should not be surprising to us. Uh, The serpent, who's also called the dragon or the devil or Satan, imitates the father because he's always wanted to be God. In fact, that's why he fell from heaven, because he was not content with being a created being and being under God's authority. He wanted to be God, and so he exalted himself, and he was cast down. He also will raise up during the tribulation period uh, a beast or an antichrist. An antichrist doesn't simply mean against Christ, it means also another Christ, okay? in place of Messiah, a false Messiah who's called the beast. He will imitate the Son. He won't glorify himself. He'll point all glory to the false father, that is, the beast. And he'll have a prophet 
called the second beast, who will imitate the Holy Spirit. Again, not taking glory to himself, but glorifying the false son so the false son can glorify the false prophet. In fact, the false son will receive a wound, a wound so severe that it appears that he dies and is raised from the dead, and then the false prophet will perform signs and wonders in his midst so that all will worship the beast, so that all will worship Satan. And together they form a false trinity that God will destroy. Now, if you have ever in your life suffered, if you have ever experienced temptation that you just didn't want, and you say, God, I wish I were not even tempted. If you've ever suffered physically, if you've ever been wronged by someone, on that day you will rejoice. Because the source of all that pain and suffering and sorrow in the world is what Satan has brought into the world because of the fall. And so on that day you will rejoice. And really, that's what the book of Revelation is about. Remember, it's not revelations, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of God's Son, who is the Lamb that was slain, reaches out to the throne room of God. From the hand of God, he takes that scroll that we said last week is the title deed to earth. He begins to unpack it. He begins to unleash God's plan to recapture all of earth for God's glory so that it can live and breathe and experience life under God's blessing. That's what Revelation is all about. Turn back with me to chapter 11 and verse 15. Recall that we said the book of Revelation reads like a play, like a drama, and you've got uh, two, two sides to the stage. One is scenes upon earth and one is scenes upon heaven. And then periodically there's an intermission where heaven must just worship. They have to stop and God will summarize the whole point of this exercise. Chapter 11 is one of those intermissions. Verse 15 it says, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and they worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged and your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints, and all of those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who have been destroying the earth. And on that moment, when God begins to execute his program, we're told all of heaven just begins to sing and shout and rejoice and celebrate. Turn back with me to chapter 19 and verse 7. Chapter 19 and verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give, the glory, give glory to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then He said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And He said to me, These are true words of God. This will happen. Now, we don't often think of it in these terms, but you know, heaven loves to celebrate. Heaven loves a party. Uh, specifically, heaven's favorite party is a wedding party, right? First celebration in the book of Genesis was a wedding. Jesus' first miracle was at a wedding. Final celebration, book of Revelation, is it's a wedding. And I know a lot of you guys are going, man, couldn't you pick a different kind of party, right? I understand. Um, I, I feel that. Uh, for roughly half the audience that's sitting here, let me explain why we feel that way. 
Okay. Uh, I remember when I got engaged to my wife. Now, my wife, um, she, said, she informed me, she said, well, you know, as we're trying to set a date, you need to understand that, that you need a minimum of six months to plan the wedding. And I'm like, seriously, let's just, you know, our, we already told our parents, just get everybody, six months, how can that possibly be? She said, no, no, six months is a minimum. Six months minimum. And I'm thinking to myself, this just cannot be. There's no possible way it would take that long to plan this little party that we're calling a wedding. I just, I can't see it. But then I was taken to Dillard's to register, right? And um, after looking at, I'm not exaggerating. I mean, it sounds like exaggeration, but I, I probably looked at like 300 forks. After 300 forks, I was in the corner in Dillard's, curled up in a ball, holding my knees, crying, beaten. I was just beaten, right? I was totally beaten. And I go, okay, I give in, right? Six months. We'll wait six months. Now, as a dad, I, I'm, I'm feeling it even more, right? Because we go, as dads go, oh my gosh, this is crazy. This is not just the length of time to plan this thing, but it's extravagant. It's expensive. Let me, let me clue you in. I did a little research a couple weeks ago on the current costs of wedding because I'm needing to plan for this and inflation because uh, my daughter's just nine right now. So here's what's going on, right? Here's what's going on, okay? The average wedding dress now costs $1,000, Right? And half of you are going, oh my gosh, are you serious? A thousand bucks for one dress that you wear one time away. And the rest of you are going, that's not bad. <laughs> right? Okay. Now let me just let me just clue you in. This this does not include accessories. You don't know what accessories are. You just look I can see. Okay, so here's here's what accessories are. I, I have the same accessories. You have to have accessories. That includes the veil. Right? And you have to have special wedding shoes. And I guess, I don't know, maybe they're like wedding socks too. And you've got <laughs> certain jewelry you've got to wear. And, and uh, there's, there's makeup, certain makeup, and your hair has to be done. Okay, the thousand doesn't include any of the accessories. Okay, no accessories are included in that. Okay? The average reception in the United States of America now costs $11,000. Mints and snacks and crackers and cheese, man. What? 11,000 worth? 11,000. Now, there are a few other items, okay? A few other items. You got flowers, video, photography, rings, invitations, honeymoon, entertainment, DJs, that kind of thing. Uh, what I discovered that I thought was really uh, illegitimate was the fact that in these, these lists of, of the total costs, I'm going to show you in just a minute they often didn't include rings. I'm thinking, that's part of this whole gig we got going on here, right? It often didn't include the honeymoon. I'm thinking, no, that's, that's, be, let's be honest. Let's include the whole package, right? So the, the number I'm going to show you in a minute doesn't include all those things. Uh, you also, you have to hire a consultant these days. <laughs> the average consultant makes $1,300 per wedding, right? $1,300. Now let me just say, Pastors don't make $1,300 per wedding. <laughs> and, you know, you brides are saying, yeah, it's because you don't do as much work. And I say to that, well, try to get married without the pastor, right? <laughs> so when I discovered this, I said to myself, I need to make an announcement. I, I am no longer doing weddings, but I am available to consult. <laughs> okay? I'm available. 
All right, grand total, grand total, which doesn't include some really important items, but here's the average, twenty-five dollars to $30,000. Oh, man, seriously. Wow. That's the average United States wedding right now, twenty-five dollars to $30,000. And you dads are going, oh, my gosh, I can't believe this. Why did God pick a wedding, right? Couldn't we have some other form of celebration? Dads, here's the bad news. In the first century, the weddings were even more extravagant than this. They were even more extravagant. The, the model that God is working off of, in a sense, really is what happened culturally in, in the ancient Near East. And those weddings were more extravagant. They weren't just one afternoon or one evening. They would go on literally uh, for a week. And you couldn't sit down and make your guest list and say, no, you know, crazy Aunt Daryl, we're not, or Uncle Daryl, Aunt Daryl, yeah. <laughs> Don't invite her, him. We can't invite that person. No, you'd have strangers show up, right? As soon as people find out that there's a wedding, the whole town shows up. You can't disinvite. And you're going to feed them multiple meals for an entire week. Okay? This is the biggest deal, biggest event. Families would spend a fortune on this. A fortune. The good news for us, Dad, is that this wedding feast to which we are invited, that God throws, we don't have to pay for. Right? God pays for all of it, and God owns everything, and it is going to be exceptionally extravagant. It will be the greatest party, the party that is the most fun that has ever been thrown in all of human history, ever. Read with me again, chapter 19, verse 7. The angels cry out and they say, let us rejoice and let us be glad, let us give glory to him For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It says rejoice and be glad. And, you know, unfortunately this this terminology just doesn't really, it doesn't leap off the page enough at you. You know, be glad. Well, I'm I'm glad Brian will end on time and I get to go to lunch afterwards. I'm glad. You know, it's just kind of innocuous, be glad, right? But it means something much more powerful than that. It's actually a combination of two Greek words. It's a prefix which means a lot or again. And it's a verb that means to leap around. So rejoice and leap around a lot. Just leap and leap and leap and leap and leap. That's what the verb is talking about. Rejoice and be glad. Leap around for joy. Why? Because this outcome is certain. In the midst of all of the uncertainties of your life, there is one outcome that is certain. It will happen. It is the marriage supper of the Lamb when God has established His kingdom on earth and you are invited to the celebration party. So rejoice. Peter describes it like this. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, he says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, but you believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy that is beyond what you can even express and full of glory. The book of Isaiah, Isaiah expresses it like this. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. I will be overjoyed because of my God. For he clothes me in garments of deliverance. He puts on me a robe symbolizing vindication. I look like a groom when he wears a turban as a priest would. Look like a bride when she puts on her finest jewelry. You know what the context is in Isaiah? It's the return of Messiah. It's the return of God's Messiah to establish God's kingdom on earth. And Isaiah says, you know, that's going to be like a wedding party. And I'm just thrilled. I am I'm inexpressibly overjoyed. Literally, it says, rejoice, rejoice. Isaiah says, I rejoice, rejoice. Another interesting verb. The root of the verb uh, means to spin around. 
The root of the verb means to spin. Have you ever seen a little girl with a new dress? Yeah, I love it when a little girl walks into church and I see her in a new dress and I can tell it's new and she likes it and she likes the way it feels. And I can never resist. I go up and I say, can you show me how it spins? Right? I've never had a little girl tell me no. Ever. Ever. And she just starts to spin and spin. And, you know, after one turn, she's forgotten everything else that's going on in the room. She's just experiencing the joy of that dress in that moment and spinning and celebrating and rejoicing. Now, I will say, I, I, have not, I haven't worn many dresses and I don't spin. Well, I spin once now and I get, uh, my equilibrium's not as good. I get off balance, so I don't do that. But I, I have jumped for joy before. I remember the last time I jumped for joy. Actually, it was when Anna Joy and I were bowling and she got a strike. And we're like, yes, you know, and she jumps back from the lane and we're high-fiving and hugging and we're celebrating because it was such a victory. We're celebrating. You remember the last time you jumped for joy? Do you remember the last time you jumped for joy in worship? Some of you can say, yeah, never. (laughs) I don't don't jump for joy. Well, you will. A day will come when all of the the memory of of pain and sorrow is, is pushed away and all that you are thinking about is celebrating because God has sent his son back to earth to set everything right to heal all of the earth to remove pain and sorrow and temptation and sin and you will I promise you you will leap and spin for joy it'll be hard to stop because you will be filled with joy inexpressible I want you to turn back to the book of Matthew with me chapter 5 the Sermon on the Mount Matthew chapter 5 Verses 10 through 12. This is the only other place in the entire New Testament where these two verbs are used together other than Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 5, verse 10. Jesus said, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. It says, Rejoice and be glad, because your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus says, In the midst of all of that persecution and suffering, go ahead and rejoice now. Go ahead and start now. Why? Because Jesus will return and he'll set all things right. And so you may not know what tomorrow will bring. You may not know if it's additional suffering and sorrow, but you know the final outcome. And so start now, rejoice. Because when God establishes the kingdom of Jesus Christ, his son on earth, he's going to throw a party and you're invited. What I find interesting is that, in fact, throughout the entire Bible, this imagery of of wedding and marriage is used of our relationship with God. So let me describe it for you. This is what a Jewish wedding looked like. There were several elements. The first was a contract. The father of the groom would go to the bride's family and he would pay a price. It's called the bride price. He would purchase that bride for his son as a wife. The moment that he did so, the families entered into a contract and they were considered married. They weren't married yet. They weren't together yet. But it was a contract. It was a guarantee. The price had been paid. That is a picture of our salvation, men and women. God paid a price. 
He rescued us out of our former family, out of darkness and death. He paid a price. The price was the death of his son, Jesus Christ. And that's a contract. It's viewed as a contract throughout the Bible. It's a guaranteed contract. Why? Because God is faithful. Not because we're faithful. Because we're not. But because God is faithful. So we are guaranteed a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, the Son, that lasts forever because God is faithful. He paid the price in Jesus Christ. You receive that when you believe. Say, God, thank you. I believe Jesus died for me. You enter into that contract and you are safe forever. But they're not married in the Jewish tradition in terms of the consummation of marriage. It doesn't happen yet. Instead, what happens is the bride stays in her home and she gets herself ready. Right? She gathers her accessories. Right? So she's getting all her stuff ready, getting her uh, maid of honor and all the, all the bridesmaids, and they're all getting ready, and they're enjoying that, that preparation process. The son goes back to his father's house. He doesn't build a new home for his bride. He builds a room onto his father's house, as Jesus said. In my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and I prepare, prepare a place or a room for you. That's what Jesus is talking about. Returning to his father's house and adding on a room for us. That's the period of time that we live in right now. We're waiting. What should we do while we wait? Get ready. Get ready. Because at any moment in time, the groom could say, this is the day. And the groom didn't tell anyone when he would be ready. He didn't know exactly when that room would be finished. But as soon as that room was finished, boy, he was ready. He wanted to go. Let's go. I'm tired of waiting six months, nine months, a year, ten years. Let's go. The room is ready. And so he would step into the streets. They would blow a trumpet and announce, behold, the groom is coming. Behold, the groom is coming. And he would march to the bride's house and he would snatch her away for himself. That's the rapture. And he takes the bride to himself and he takes her back to the wedding chamber. And in the wedding chamber, all is seen. All is seen. Was she prepared? Was she not prepared? She sees him and he sees her. That's the judgment seat of Christ. That's for believers, Christians. It's that moment when we stand before God and our lives are evaluated. Did we live for the kingdom of God or did we live for ourselves? The issue is not married or unmarried or salvation or no salvation. We are saved because we're under contract. The issue is did we live well and wisely? And so there's evaluation, and after the evaluation, then they come out and celebrate, and that's the feast. That's the feast. There's a celebration that goes on. It's the wedding supper of the Lamb. That, that is, that, that's the, the greatest moment that will ever be experienced by anyone. And you know, God wants us to be thinking about that moment, not just once in a while, right, when you, you know, every ten years hear a sermon on Revelation 19. Right? Or since it's in the back of your Bible, once, once every two, three years you get to Revelation and you read Revelation chapter 19. No, he, he wants you to be thinking about it constantly. Did you know that? In fact, it is embedded in the worship cycle of the church to remember and think about this event. It's actually embedded in communion. When Jesus first instituted communion, he said, this is what I want communion to be about. My, the Lord's Supper. It's my supper. Right? It was a meal. It was a party. It was a celebration. It's a Passover meal. And in this celebration, I want to put a new spin on it. I want you to not just think about the Passover lamb that got Israel rescued out of Egypt. What I want you to think about is me. My my body is represented by this bread broken for you, suffering. The cup, that represents my blood poured out for you. And then I want you to remember that I'm not going to drink 
this cup or eat this bread with you again until I drink it again in the kingdom. When? At the marriage supper of the Lamb, right? So at communion, every time we celebrate communion, what do you think? Well, you think back about the cross of Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection, but you also think forward to the return of Jesus Christ when he establishes his kingdom on earth and we get invited to the party, right? And heaven says, this is so absolutely certain that it will occur. Go ahead and celebrate now. Go ahead and celebrate now. Because I will not be defeated. No one's going to score in the last minute or 30 seconds of the game. I win. Because Jesus wins, guess what, men and women? We win. Because Jesus wins, we win, guaranteed. Celebrate that. Enjoy that. In the midst of all of the frustrations and uncertainty of life, celebrate. Now, how long will that celebration go on? Seven days? Maybe seven years? (laughs) The length of the tribulation, maybe it's a seven-year period. We don't know. But we do know at some point in time during that celebration, the groom is going to push back from the table and he's going to say, somebody get me my horse, right? And then he's going to look at us and he's, say, he's going to say, let's ride. Let's go. It's time to go put the kingdom on earth. Read with me chapter 19, Revelation, in verse 11. Revelation 19, verse 11. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and he wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. On his head there are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Who's that? That's us. They were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The white robes, what are they? Look back chapter 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice, let us be glad, give glory to him, For the marriage of the Lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. The fine linen, well, that's the righteous acts of the saints. That's what we're doing right now, men and women. We are getting prepared. I've never known a bride to pick out a striped dress or a spotted dress. She doesn't wear the dress around the house to cook and clean before the wedding because she doesn't want it to be stained. It hangs in the closet. It's covered with plastic, right? She wants that dress ready and prepared. She wants it perfect. The fine linen, white and clean, that's the righteous acts of the saints. That's how we prepare for this day. Paul describes it in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, we are his workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. He laid those out beforehand so that we would walk in them. Not necessarily huge and dramatic acts of obedience, but day in, day out faithfulness that gets us prepared for that moment when the King of Kings and Lord of Lords pushes back from the table, he gets on his horse, and he begins to ride. And he reveals himself. He reveals himself. We're told here that he has several names that he brings with him. The first is faithful and true. The second is the Word of God. On his name, on his thigh, is written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But then there's another name. It's a name that's written on him that no one knows except himself. That is, it's a a character of God, God's Son that has 
yet to be revealed, but when we go with him, we will see it, we will know him, we will celebrate his victory. You realize when the book of Revelation was written, the church was being persecuted harshly by Rome. The kingdom of the earth, the most powerful kingdom of the earth, maybe of all times, Rome was persecuting Christians. The emperor at that time was insisting that Christians worship him as God, and when Christians wouldn't, they weren't simply losing property or jobs, they were often losing their their freedom, being imprisoned, or dying, or dying. And so in this vision that John has, I think God reaches in and he grabs the imagery of Rome, and he shows how Jesus is so much greater. Because when a Roman general would win a victory, he would sit on a white horse. He would come into Rome, down the Via Sacra. He would go from the Forum to the Temple of Jupiter. And he would be hailed as a conqueror. And he would bring all the plunder behind him and prisoners behind him. And following him would be all of his soldiers who accomplished the victory with him. Revelation chapter 19, we're told it's Jesus who shows up. It's Jesus who shows up. He's the one seated on a white horse. Remember when Jesus first came, there was some confusion. Who who is this man? Could he be the Messiah? Are you really the Messiah? Can you show us a sign? It was confusing. Why? According to Zechariah 9, verse 9, it says, Behold, your king is coming to you. But he's coming to you just and endowed with salvation. He's humble. He's mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He's not coming in, in glorious power and strength. He's coming in humility. And so, this is how it transpired. Jesus came into Jerusalem mounted on a, a coal, a, 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 a colt, a, a foal of a donkey. And so many said, well, could he be the Messiah, really? Could this humble man conquer Rome and crush our enemies? And they missed him. But when Jesus returns a second time, you know, no one will miss him. Zechariah 14, it says, he will stand on the Mount of Olives, and the Mount of Olives will split from east to west. The fault line runs all the way down into Africa. It's a great rift valley. It goes all the way down into Africa. It runs north-south. But when Jesus stands on the Mount of Olives, it's going to split the opposite direction. There's going to be this massive earthquake. And he stands there and every eye will see him. and every, every ear will hear his voice. Every tongue will confess, this is King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the one who has come in victory. And he's got many crowns upon his head, we're told. Two types of crowns in that day. There was the crown of victory, the wreath, his branches. Jesus wears one of those at some point in time because he is a victor. Those who faithfully follow Jesus, you and I, we get to wear one of those victor's crowns. This is talking about a different crown. This is the crown of the ruler. It's the diadem crown. It's a, the picture, picture, if you can, for a minute, the, the turban wrapped around someone's head. It's a Persian image. Turban is wrapped around his head, and there are jewels placed in the turban. Those jewels represent each of the nations that he has conquered. So Jesus comes, he's mounted on this this white horse, the symbol of victory, and on his head he has many crowns, that is, many diadems, the symbol of all the nations, because all the nations will worship him, and we will come with him on that day, men and women. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are Are you living for that day? I don't, I don't want to make light of, of anyone's suffering. I don't, I don't like making light of my own suffering and challenges I face in this life. But 
The fact of the matter is, that, that glory, that moment is so much greater than anything that we struggle with or suffer in this life, that in that day we will forget all of that suffering and we will leap and dance for joy and spin and rejoice because we know, because Jesus wins, we win. And Jesus does win. And we know that he wins because he was raised from the dead. Because he was raised from the dead, he demonstrated the ultimate power, that is the power over death. And someday he'll return and he will establish his kingdom and he will gather all of the earth to worship God the Father and we get to be with him on that day. Are you living for that day, that moment? That's what we need to prepare for. Let's pray. Father, I pray that in the midst of our struggles, you would lift up our eyes and remind us in a a fresh and a new invigorating way that your son is King of kings and Lord of lords. We may wait now in a world that is dominated by the power of the evil one, but we know how this ends. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus will return. Because he wins, we win. We will come with him, clothed in white, following our King of kings and Lord of lords. Father, I pray that you lift up our eyes through this vision of John. Give us fresh hope and courage in this day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Go out today and celebrate.